Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, maybe one of the most storied punk drummers, certainly of the 90s, but uh, maybe maybe ever. I'm going to put him on that list. Dan Panic, certainly the nicest person I've ever met in punk rock, that, that goes without saying, uh, is on the show today. Someone that I met as a young, young lad and then recently reconnected with. And I got to say that there's one consistent in this world, and that is that he was an amazing person to me as a young person way back when and still an amazing guy. But more on that in one second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page, facebook.com slash turned out a punk, as well as an Instagram at turned out a punk. All of those are run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. If you're looking for me on social media, I can be found at at left for Damien. If you are like to uh, support this podcast, the best way to support this podcast is by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you listen to this thing and you have a good time when you do do that. And that's the best way we can grow it. And speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of my friends over there at Vans. Vans and the House of Vans came on board uh, a year and a bit ago now, two years ago almost, then and said, you know what? We love your podcast. We want you to do it but we don't want you to have to spend your own money doing it. And so they came on board and made that possible. So I got to say thank you to them. And I'm going to be going to some House of Vans events coming up in the near future. So I'll be doing some live podcasts there, and I will see you there. Speaking of live podcasts, next week, Turned Out of Punk is going to be appearing as part of the Camp Fuzz Event? Yeah, event. There's no other way to describe it. It is Dinosaur Junior Summer Camp. There's going to be myself and a few other people, including uh, show Turn Out a Punk alumni. Fred Armisen's going to be there. And, uh, well, maybe one day, hopefully, fingers crossed, Kevin Shields from My Bloody Valentine will be there. And it's going to be a great time. So I think it's sold out. But if it's not sold out, 
and, and you got you got a little bit of money to drop. It's, it's not cheap, this thing. Do it, because I promise you it will be an amazing time. And I'm going to be there doing, you know, my thing as well. So make your way on out if you can, if it's not sold out. I think it's sold out, though. So, you know, I'm just bragging at this point. I'm not even promoting. I'm just bragging about it. I'm going to have tons of stuff coming out of that thing, so don't worry. It's going to be a gift that gives to you in a small way. You're not going to be there but you're still going to get something out of it. And maybe you're going to be there. Maybe you're one of those people that got a ticket. I hear it's very small. I hear it's a very, very few. It's going to be a very <laughs> interesting concert to, uh, you know, see these bands play and audiences that, uh, to, sorry, two audiences that, uh, uh, you know, are, are a little more small than they're used to playing too. So I'm excited. Oh, I'm excited for this whole weekend thing coming up. Oh, it's actually on a weekday. And actually uh, coming up this week, we're going to be fucked up, I mean, going to be playing down there in in uh, North Carolina for the Merge 30th Anniversary Show. A dream come true to get to play with Super Chunk. And oh, I'm, I'm really excited to do this. This is going to be a fun time. I got a lot of fun things coming up in the next few weeks. Anyway, that's that. And this is this. On Wednesday at 10 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, The Wrestlers is on in the U.K. This week... If you're listening to this episode when it comes out, it's going to be the uh, the Evolve episode, for lack of a better name for it. The first episode from the American airings, but it's the second episode in the UK airings, and it's wild. Darby Allen, former guest of the show, is on there. Uh, some other potential future guests of the show are also seen in the background on that episode. I'm not going to say who until they appear on the show, but yeah, there's, there's some punk rock connection. So if you're in the UK, check out, uh, the wrestlers on Viceland at 10 PM on Wednesday. And I think that's it for plugs. Okay. Now on to today's show today on the show, I have, uh, an incredible guest. This is someone that I met. You'll hear all about it when I was a young person at a show and he was super cool, just like so unbelievably friendly, no ego, just chill, awesome. And then meeting him years later and he's still the same person. Dan Panic is a punk rock legend. He's played in everything from Screeching Weasel to Pansy Division to, 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 to the, tons of other stuff. He is really, when I say the drummer's drummer, he... You know, when he came backstage at a fucked up show, you should have seen the mob scene of people in fucked up and all the other bands we were hanging around with kind of going over to talk to this guy. And he's just the guy, you know, like he just, you'll hear it. I don't want to, you know, ramble on too much more. I want you to just listen to this thing. Uh, I'm going to warn you though, there is a couple audio glitches things. I cleaned it up as much as possible, but unfortunately there is some audio stuff in it. Uh, it's, it's. Totally listenable. Don't worry. It's totally listenable. Don't you'll you'll hear in a second. Uh, but yeah, just be forewarned. There's a couple parts where, you know, I couldn't clean those parts up, but that's it. Uh, I, I can't hype up this guy anymore to you. He, you will hear on this thing. What a sweet guy he is. So everyone sit back, relax. Oh, there's some good stories on this and get ready for Dan panic on turned out a punk. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm a I'm a big admirer of your uh, of your band and uh, the music that you do, and 
and your podcast as well. So this is uh, exciting for me, probably more for me than for you. <laughs> well, I doubt that very much, and I'm glad this is an audio podcast so you can't see me blush right now because <laughs> I, I extend that right back to yourself. And as I have told you off air, there was a moment where I got to hang out with you way back when on a Groovy Ghoulies tour that you were on with Mr. T Experience. And I got to say, meeting you way back then was a pivotal kind of interaction that I had on my journey and set the gold standard for the way someone in a band should interact with a fan. So I appreciate you doing that all the way back then. And so it's great to finally get to have you on the show to kind of thank you on the public record for that interaction way back when. Wow. That you just, uh, completely humbled me and blew my mind. So, uh, I appreciate it. And I think it was, we were talking that your, I had, you had me sign a drum head for your brother. Mm-hmm. Yep. My, my brother was, uh, you know, a couple years younger and unable to make the show. Tristan, who you've talking to, you've spoken to yeah. yourself at this point. And you were, you, I don't think I even asked you to sign a drum head. I don't think I was even that presumptuous. I was like, can you sign something? I think I had a flyer or something for you to sign for my brother. And you're like, Oh no, I can do better than that. And you ran inside <laughs> and, and took your drum head. Yeah. Yeah. I would never be presumptuous enough to ask you for that drum head, figuring you need it, not knowing how the drums actually work other than hitting them with a stick. So that's about, that's about what I know about drums. So. Well, that put, <laughs> we're, I, we're an evil thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've got a couple uh, records that prove that, you know, a little bit more than I do about the drums, but yeah, that was the coolest dude. That was so awesome of you to do way back when. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, um, I don't take, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> uh, I just, I, I think being a fan of music and, you know, and having that interaction with people that appreciate what you do, uh, is very humbling and I never took it for granted. So it's always appreciated. Well, no, I, and I, and I think that's why, like, you know, that's, I think why you were, you know, friendly with all these, you know, like people like myself, you know, is because, you know, that's, we, none of us should take it for granted when we're in those situations because it is not necessarily a natural situation to be in. And no. I think far too many of us do wind up taking it for granted. And it's, and I, and I understand sometimes you're, you know, especially when you're on the road, sometimes it's really difficult because you might have personal stuff going on in your life and you're far away from home and you can't be there to offer emotional support or you're sick or you're just exhausted or you and your bandmates are having a little brouhaha or whatever the case may be. You know, there's so many factors being in a band and being on tour uh, that really can cause havoc with, with one's head. And so you, kind of don't want to take it out on people who support you so it's a very yes it's a it's just a yeah it's a difficult situation to be in but yet it's inspiring as well and something that i don't think anyone who starts playing in a band goes into it thinking it's like oh i'm gonna get worshipped or people are going to 
you know, appreciate what I do and pay to see what, you know, what I do or anything like that, anything that would be preposterous. So if anything happens in any level where it's small or large, you know, it's, it's not to, it's not to be taken for granted or expected. So, um, I got to start this off though, the way I start them all off, Dan, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? I would say late seventies, uh, Blondie. I heard Heart of Glass on the radio, and I fell in love with it. And Parallel Lines was the, I believe, the second album I ever purchased. And so I would say Blondie was most likely my foothold into the punk rock. And then I purchased Eat to the Beat when that came out shortly, probably about a year after. And where were you hearing about this stuff at the time? Um, well, since I was about probably about seven or eight years old at the time, uh, I heard Heart of Glass on the radio, and I thought, I have to get this. Even though, funnily enough, I'm not particularly fond of disco, uh, and I know that a lot of punks, even back then, claimed sellout when uh, Blondie did that song. But uh, there was something about it I really liked, and I found the rest of the album complete opposite of that. And I really loved – I just liked the fact that they played with all sorts of different genres, whether it be hip-hop or uh, 60s pop or power pop or punk rock, disco – I think that was something that was really interesting about that particular period, the the influx of punk the, initially was there wasn't a set style that seemed to come later when hardcore reared itself, where it became, this is how you dress, this is what you listen to. Um, but yeah, if you look at this coast, East Coast, as far as, or even in Canada, um you know, you had bands like Teenage Head and Forgotten Rebels and, you know, and yeah, I mean, it just, it just seems a wider net of influences and it sort of, in some aspects, kind of narrowed down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. I mean, like, as people kind of like, you know, try to put it into a box. Uh, yeah, it became it, more of like a stricter... Uh, a stricter sense of mythos to mm -hmm. it than uh, and uh, and there was something about that early stuff that I really appreciated because I just really enjoyed a wealth of different musical influences and um, there's something about that era that I really appreciate for that but uh, but I would say Blondie would be my my foothold into the punk rock world. So, you know, obviously you're super young at seven years old. What were some of the first concert experiences you had or going like, you know, you're buying these singles. Like what were the record stores like going to as a young person? Um, I would save up my allowance money and purchase things. Um, whether I heard it on the radio, um, whether it was a major radio station or, 
my case, there'd be sometimes I'd be able to get uh, a college radio. Northwestern uh, Northwest University had a radio station. They played a lot of punk rock and new wave stuff. And uh, occasionally I'd be able to get that. It was a weaker signal. Um, and at the time I was living in the western suburbs. So I'd get bits and pieces of songs and not necessarily get the artists' names, but I sort of got an idea uh, of some of these bands just from the songs that I heard. But, uh, yeah, I mean, my first album that I purchased was Pink Floyd Omagama at age seven. Uh, <laughs> that's a heavy cut. That should give you some insight on why I turned out the way that I did. Um <laughs> But I remember uh, my dad had one of his friends over, and they were playing the first side of the live side, side one, Tommy Domine and Careful That Acts Eugene. I remember the Careful That Acts Eugene bit when Roger Walters screams. is uh, just like startled the hell out of me. And uh, I thought to myself, I have to get this album. <laughs> so here's this little seven-year-old kid at the record bar I remember the name of the record store in Villa Park, Illinois, and kind of handing it to the guy. And the guy looked at me and he said, are you sure you want to buy this kid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it was kind of a great thing because it introduced me a little bit to the psychodrama of music. And also it subconsciously got me into 20th century classical music as well with Richard Wright's solo bit on there. So, yeah. Well, I guess as a young person too, it's like, there's something about Pink Floyd being so cinematic and, and just like, you know, like a, a lot to kind of like take in that just, yeah, I was the same way at seven years old. There's just something about that band that just draws you in. Yeah, and you know, it wasn't till later I remember USA Network had Night Flight. I remember seeing Pink Floyd live at Pompeii yeah. on there, and I was like, "Oh, this is awesome!" <laughs> and I know there's probably people listening that are heavily ensconced in pop punk or punk rock are absolutely horrified right now that I'm singing the praises of Pink Floyd. But uh, oh well. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think we also are at a point now where all those old divisions have kind of fallen away. You hope a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And I'm old anyway, so eh. yeah. Well, you, you know, and <laughs> yeah, kids, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, where did you go, like you know you from Pink Floyd to where were some of the other concerts you went to as a young person? Well, I I didn't go to I, I've never seen Pink Floyd live. It was just buying the album. The uh, okay. first concert I saw was Cheap Trick, Rosemont Horizon. Uh, I want to say eighty two. Oh, what a show! Um, so that was my first show that I saw, and uh, Cheap Trick. You know, sometimes people are really embarrassed when. He's like, oh, what was the first band you saw? And a lot of people are like, ah, well, it was such and such. So I'm really glad that Cheap Trick was the foundation of my concert experience. Yeah, they're definitely a band that, you know, like you can hold your head up high in yeah. in a way that they were like the first the first one you got to see. So were you already playing at that point? Or were you already no, interested in drums? Uh, 
I started my formative years uh, doing the uh, traditional banging on pots and pans. Uh, Tupperware came in really handy because you can get these different pitches uh, from the different size bowls. Uh, and then I think I advanced to an ottoman. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then eventually to school desks. <laughs> and eventually bought a drum kit. Were uh, there was there music in your family? Were other people playing? Well, I found out later that my dad had played drums growing up, and my mother sang in the church choir. Uh, and then my sister was also uh, she was younger than I was, and she played in the school, school band. Uh, but my father was really into music, so I was exposed to music at a very young age as far as listening. And even in high school, I remember getting quizzical looks from people because I could listen to something like Slayer, Rain, and Blood. And then also go to the Spinners and listen to like old, you know, like early 70s soul. And it to totally makes made sense to me. And a lot of people around me are like, well, you know. You can't like metal and like Madonna. I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I fucking can. Um, you know, like to me, kind of piggyback on that whole concept is, you know, and I'm going to give your band a plug here. Fucked up, Dose Your Dreams album. Yes, it's it's a it's a plug. Uh, but I mean. What I love about that album is it really does – it's not just a punk rock album. There's – you know, you mentioned cinematic. There's sort of a cinematic quality to it, uh, and it really encapsulates to me a lot of different genres into one another, and it's, to me, seamless. Uh, it's, it seems like it's seamless, but I just – I love it. And uh, so that, oh, well, thank there's you. my little plug. Well, thank you very much for that. And once again, I'm very glad it's an audio podcast so you can't see me blush. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like so, you know, you're into all sorts of music at this. Uh, what point did you kind of find yourself gravitating or what time did you start seeing like sort of a punk scene around you emerging or or become aware of it at least? Um, I would say high school and uh, – would be around the time when I really sort of started paying attention to punk rock again. Like there were, it was in the peripheral. Occasionally I'd, you know, hear something and I'd be like, Oh, that's interesting. But, uh, where I grew up, there wasn't a, a huge punk conglomeration. So it was, you know, and this is before internet and everything. So it was pretty much word of mouth. Yeah. And, uh, and there were some people in high school that, uh, turned me on to various punk bands. And I, and I went through a spell where I was into hard rock and heavy metal. And, uh, I think I just be become, uh, disillusioned with it. Uh, it just wasn't. It just wasn't uh, appealing to me anymore like it used to. 
and even in the throes of meeting in the hard rock and metal, I still listened to soul and hip hop and, you know, I was just still all over the place, but, um, yeah, the punk rock thing really appealed to me because it was regular people playing music in varying degrees of technicality. Um, and there was a rawness to it that I really appreciated. And there was a, and a lot of the bands had a sense of humor too, which I really appreciated. Um, so when I came back to it, the first punk album I purchased was The Replacement. Sorry, Ma, I forgot to take out the trash. Uh, and I bought that purely because one of the guys that I went to school with uh, kept telling me about The Replacements. And I just, I thought with an album title like that, I know I'm going to like this. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, so cavalier about their album title, you know, <laughs> their debut album. It's it's like, eh. <laughs> what was some of the metal stuff you were into? Was it like any of the Chicago stuff that was happening at the time? Like master or any of those bands? Uh, there was a little bit of that. There, uh, there was a uh, early Motley Crue. I liked, um, you know, Metallica, uh, Merciful Fate, Celtic Frost, um, stuff like that. There wasn't, there was a little bit of the metal scene in Chicago that I was aware of, but not quite as much. Uh, where I was living at the time was fairly insular. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, a lot of the metal stuff that, everyone listened to was more of the mainstream type stuff. But mm -hmm. there was a metal station on that was, <clears throat> there was a metal station on that was actually a Spanish speaking station, but from eight o'clock in the evening to like midnight or two in the morning that there was a metal show. And so I got to, you know, hear a bit more about motorhead and, and stuff like that. Is that where you would have been hearing it? Like, you know, the Chicago bands that were kind of coming onto your radar, was it on there or was it just through people telling about them word of mouth type thing? Yeah, it was a, a radio, like, like small signal radio stations like that. Also the Illinois entertainer, which was a free music magazine. Um, you get that on occasion. That was basically at or word of mouth through friends. So when you get to high school and you begin, like, you know, you, as you say, you begin getting a little bit more involved in punk. After the Replacements record, what was your next step? Um, Sex Pistols was after that. And then I think uh, the literal handful uh, of punks that went to high school were, I think, pretty ecstatic that that I was interested in punk rock because it's few and far between. And so one of them gave me a cassette of dead Kennedy's fresh fruit for rotting vegetables. And in God, we trust, um, which later I bought Frank and Christ. That was the first dead Kennedy album that I purchased. Uh, another one, uh, uh, lent me the, uh, crass feeding of the 5,000, and just kind of went from there. And it was just uh, like, oh, what should I check out? And so I would go to the record shop and like, okay, I'll pick this out or I'll check this out. And, and that's basically where it 
So were these handful the of first, punk? Sorry, go on. Oh, but the first, technically the first punk show that I saw was at McGregor's, I want to say 85, 86. Um, I think a cover band opened up, but the band uh, was headlining, but the band that opened up was called The Feds. And oh yeah, they were they were on Doctor Strange at some point, right? Well, this was a different. This was a Western Suburbs. <laughs> oh, Feds. What was really what was yeah? So they were called the Feds before I think there was the Feds. Uh, Doctor Strange. Was Is interesting. The other about Feds them. from Chicago, the ones that was on Doctor Strange, I think, or I'm totally mistaken on that. Maybe. Um, I don't think so. I don't think this. Uh, version of the feds put out anything but there's an interesting uh, Chicago footnote to that because I remember I was impressed because they did this really fast version of Black Sabbath Paranoid and I'm like yeah this is great uh, and they were selling this uh, this booklet this sort of like mock tour booklet uh, and I still have it what was interesting was years later I was digging through my stuff and I looked at it again and the guitar player was James Eha, who joined the Smashing Pumpkins. And uh, Bob Rising was the drummer, who later uh, joined uh, post- Poster Children. So it's kind of funny that what an all star guys. That, you know, Holy yeah, geez. and it was just funny. There's just like them doing a bunch of covers. So, yeah, <laughs> just looking at them like. Holy shit! <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's yeah. a, that's now probably a priceless rock, Chicago punk rock artifact, or or just rock music yeah. artifact. Well, just what's interesting about that, I think, um, if I can remember it properly, it was called Catch That Hippo Tour. It wasn't a tour whatsoever, but uh, there's you know, the obvious one went to Kinkos and printed up a handful of these things and uh, at a. I think one thing I remember in particular is a picture uh, of Bob Rising playing his playing his drums. I said Bob, uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but Bob uh, correcting John Bonham's mistakes on uh, Black Dog, you know, <laughs> uh, like underneath it or something like that. So uh, I liked I liked the irreverence of the whole thing. That kind of cracked me up about it. And I'm sure there are probably people in the audience that were there for the cover band who headlined who would probably look at that and like, how dare you? <laughs> yeah, the sacrilege. <laughs> so was the cover band like a new wave cover band or is there anything remotely kind was, of alternative about it, what they were doing? It was uh, more just punk rock. Straight up punk rock from what I remember. Um, yeah. So having gone now to this show, what was kind of like, were there other kids that you're noticing now that were from kind of the Western suburbs? Cause like ultimately there is a, a scene, right? Like in the nineties, there is a Western suburb scene that's kind of yeah jumping. Yeah. That came late eighties, early nineties. And, um, that's when I really became more heavily involved in, going to shows at that point. Uh, I was going to College of DuPage Community College, and I saw these bunch of punk rock-looking people hanging out in this one section. 
and I was like, oh, I'm just going to sit around there and hopefully someone will talk to me or something along those lines. And uh, the bass player, uh, the guy, there was this guy, Kevin, who I was sitting next to. We were talking before classes. And he said, yeah, uh, yeah I play bass order. I said, well, I play drum order. He's like, you want to form a band? I'm like, sure. And this other guy comes walking through the doors. His name was Scott. And Kevin says to Scott, Scott, you're in a band. He's like, cool. And that's where Ivy League. Uh, that was how it came together? First. <laughs> yeah, that's literally how it came together. Like within like 10 minutes, uh, Ivy League, the first uh, punk man I joined, how it was formed. So, yeah, like so you guys form Ivy League and immediately are you kind of like there's that, as you said, there's that whole crop of bands that kind of like get going around the same time. Weed Eater, which, of course, is a Charles Bronson connection. Um, like it's like amazing how, how many of these bands like yourself, uh, you know, playing in Ivy League, how many people would go on to do other bands that are, are kind of yeah. like getting involved at that same time period. Yeah, I mean, it was really cool for me. It was eye-opening because through bands like the guys in Ivy League, the guys in Weed Eater, the guys in Target, Mannequin Hand, um, some of these bands, uh, Dickie Moe, uh, Happy Type. Billingsgate? Uh, Yuck, Billingsgate, Yuck Mouth. Uh, some of these bands are just uh, popping up the top of my head right now. I learned uh, a lot more about the underground punk scene because I was familiar with the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and the Replacements and and stuff like that. But they, you know, everyone in this little community in the western suburbs turned me on to stuff that was on Lookout Records and Discord, and so it was a. Uh, SS, you know, and I was familiar with some of the SST stuff already, but um, yeah, it was just really for me. It, you know, it was definitely being schooled and learning about all these different networks, and uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. It was very intoxicating to, you know, to be a small part of that and. You know, anyone that I became simpatico with, um, I would ask them, hey, what are you listening to? What should I check out? And so I was kind of a sponge, you know, very interested in what people that I admired, what they were listening to or what they were reading, uh, anything like that. Well, it's also that time period you're talking about. Again, it's it's that's where that it feels like that codification that you were talking about earlier that came with hardcore in the punk rock begins to break down a little bit or change a little bit. And like in Chicago, like all those bands you mentioned, like there's a lot of different sounds falling under the umbrella of punk rock at that time. And like, as it would go on, you get like cap and jazz and all these kind of, you know, emo bands and, and Los Crudos and, and hardcore bands and Charles Bronson. And then of course, screeching weasel and, and pop punk stuff. It's amazing how I'm sorry. Screeching, screeching who? Oh, sorry, Screeching Weasel. And <laughs> uh, I'm I'm not familiar with them, uh. <laughs> but like, but it's amazing how many different sounds were kind of like, 
coming out of that scene, you know, like it feels like Chicago really gets its like giant punk explosion. Like, even though there are obviously bands all the way through, but like it starts in the nineties for me. Yeah, it was Chicago was a really interesting place because um, it being such a large city and spread out the scene was kind of as well. Like you had people who could only go see the touch and go bands, you know, only, you know, there was this weird kind of segregation in the punk scene to a degree. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't really care if I liked the band, I'd go see them. Um, And, you know, there were a lot of people that felt the same way, but, uh, yeah, there was a you know, there was uh, many genres within the punk umbrella, and in that in that town, and it was really great to witness a lot of these great bands in person, uh, whether it be Trenchmouth, uh, Sludgeworth, uh, Shellac. Uh, Smoking Popes, Los Crudos. Um, yeah, there's just, yeah, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I know I'm missing out on a ton of bands right now that I would, you know, go on a long-winded, you know, uh, admiration rant on. But, yeah, I mean, it was just a lot of fun. And there was just a lot to experience and a lot to learn, a lot to take in. And, uh, yeah, I was grateful that I was around people that kind of helped guide me into other areas of punk rock. Uh, it was just, yeah, it was just an exciting time. I I love the fact that it's also so interconnected, right? Like you have Martine from Los Crudos taking photos for the first Screeching Weasel stuff. You have... Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, you know, Ebro, who played in the Meshuganas, playing in Los Crudos, also playing in Charles Bronson with Jeff Jelen, who was in Weed Eater, and you sing backup yep. vocals on a Weed Eater record, who, and you're also in Screeching Weasel, so it's full circle right there. It just feels like, it, it feels like a real scene. Yeah, you know, it is kind of weird, how, like, how different the the genres within the punk rock umbrella, but there was that, like you said, that interconnectedness to it as well. Um, Yeah. It, you know, now that you, your examples of, of that interconnectedness, I just, this just dawned on me. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's like, yeah. Chicago's like, you know, the scene where you can connect Steve Albini to Lauren Michaels. You know, like it's a, it's a, yep. a, a magical place through people's mm-hmm. playing punk bands together. I guess Lord Michaels didn't play in a punk band, but you know, he did a lot of stuff for Fred Armisen's <laughs> career. So exactly. It all, it all and, connects. Uh, and actually Ivy Lee, we did play a show with Trenchmouth at Wrigley side. And I remember just falling in love with that band. They uh, seem to be a band. That, that, Go on, sorry. They and they were a band that they were still doing, um, kind of a ska punk uh, sort of uh, flavor to it. And later on, became more 
I would say, I don't know, for lack of a better word, post-punk mm-hmm. or emo. But they've always been a – they were always a tremendous band. They're a band that, yeah, like I think is, you know, kind of underrated, um, especially now. Why they didn't, yeah, why they didn't get bigger is is a shame. Yeah, it's really interesting because like, you know, especially – talking to Cedric and finding out they were a big influence on I have to drive. And you can really kind of hear that kind of sonic like world that they're playing in. It's yeah. They, they, they're a band that in a different world would have been huge. Yeah. And, and, uh, just to piggyback on that, since you mentioned Cedric and, uh, uh, I do, uh, not that he'd be listening to this probably, but anyone, who knows him uh like to offer my apologies to cedric uh for having to be subjugated to the riverdales during the mid 90s because i heard his podcast <laughs> i remember after driving trying he said they have to drive and trying to sell their their music to record stores and does it sound like the riverdales like no it's like we're not interested <laughs> so i want i, I want to apologize to him uh for that uh so, uh, as an admirer of his work, uh, my apologies. Did you hear, <laughs> did you hear the episode with Tony Molina where he has the hot take that he loves both Screeching Weasel and the Riverdales, but he says the Riverdales are better than Screeching Weasel, which I like both bands as well. Uh, but I think them, those are kind of like fighting words, but he is, he stands by that opinion. Uh, to each, to each their own. And, uh, yeah, and Tony, my God, uh, I bought that album of his at your show, and holy, I was not expecting that whatsoever. I was just blown away. Mm-hmm. What yeah. a what an amazing songwriter! And uh, yeah, I sent him a kind of a gushing uh, email on his Bandcamp page, but I was I was not expecting. I was like, holy shit! Like, this is probably the best 15 bucks i've spent in a long time (laughs) i was i was like i'm so glad i bought this album because i was i was yeah it was my record of the year last year as well like i i really i i think he is a brilliant brilliant songwriter and you know once again like speaking like that night that you were backstage at that show every single person that was playing in a band came up to you and talked about how important the bands you had played in had been in their musical development. Right. So it's amazing, you know, like Cedric might've dropped one of the negative impacts, but there is so much positive impact. Like, I don't know what we talk about on the show if it weren't for all the bands you've been in. Oh, well, thank you. Um, no, and I, I totally understand, uh, you know, I understand people, not liking Screeching Weasel or Riverdales or, you know, I don't expect people to like, I totally get it. I'm sure any genre of music that's thrown in your face constantly, um, you're, you're gonna, you're gonna have issues with, like, I totally get that. You know, there were, you know, I just know that being in the Riverdales, I, uh, being, in the band, I never noticed uh, that sort of popularity. So it was just kind of, uh, I was like kind of shocked that like, really? Record shops are saying, do you sound like the Riverdales? <laughs> like, really? Because um, where, I, where I was at, uh, 
we weren't hugely popular. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing how when you're involved with something, it feels very different than when, the way people perceive it from the outside. And quite frankly, I'd, you know, no slight against the Riverdales or anything, but I'd, yeah, if I, if, if I'm at home, I'd much rather put on a Mars Volta album, uh, <laughs> Riverdale's one. So, so there I'm prepared to get crucified by, by, uh, by anyone and everyone for that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. going to say, I don't so, know. Uh, uh I, I, I think I might be listening to Riverdale's. I might be listening to Riverdale's. No disrespect to Mars Volta uh, on that one, but that's, yeah. that's why this is awesome because we can all, we can all listen to <laughs> all of it together or not listen to any of it. Together. Exactly. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so yeah, so I, since you met, you brought up his name, that was something that was in the back of my mind. Uh, like, I want to make a public apology to him. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> and since I am not on social media, I figured this is the best way to do it. I'm, I'm not going to be presumptuous or anything, um, but I think things worked out okay for him. So. I think, I think, yeah, I think uh, way more successful than uh, Screeching Weasel and Riverdale's combined. Um, so, and that's great for them because uh, you know I really like his, um, you know him and Omar. I really like their aesthetic and their philosophy behind music and their sense of humor and and all that. So, oh, absolutely, and talking so, about a band that changed everything you know like when at the drive-in came out it was like well I imagine it would be a couple years later there'd be a kid playing in a river riverdale sounding band walking into a record store and the record store owner would be like do you sound like at the drive-in because if not we don't want it well that was the interesting thing because i got to see at the drive-in um and i think it was 1999 at in seattle at rock candy and it was uh, I was in the plus ones at the time, which was more of a power pop type of band. And we were opening up for Blue Tip and at the drive-in. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I really had a dislike for emo. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember I saw a little bit of Blue Tip, and I thought, oh, okay. And I went. Uh, to sit behind the merchandise table and sell merch plus one's merch. And Scotty, our guitar player comes up to me and he's like, have you seen these at the drive-in yet? Have you seen these guys? It's like, no, it's like, go check them out. Like, like, and he said again, no, go check them out. I'm like, okay. And it was one of the best live shows I ever saw. Oh even yeah. Though, even though genre wise, it wasn't my cup of tea. Um, what really got my vote was in between songs, uh, Cedric had, had mentioned Lenny Bruce and Otis Redding in the same sentence. And I was in love. I was in love with him. Uh, like two people I admire greatly in the same sentence. What's the possibility of that happening? Like the serpendipity of that was amazing. So I went up to him after the show and I said, you know, your music's not my cup of tea, but God, you guys were amazing. And he looked at me. I said, what other bands have you, were you in? I said, uh, Screeching Weasel, The Queers. He's like, ah, El Paso, 1994. You played in the backyard? Like, yeah. 
do you remember Joe King saying, who the hell is smoking pot? You know, <laughs> he's like, yeah, that was Omar and I. <laughs> we were smoking pot. They're like, no fucking way. <laughs> and, and he's like, Omar, come here. It's like, and relayed the whole story. And I remember that show because we played in someone's backyard a few blocks away from a police station in El Paso. And uh, as soon as we started playing, people were slam dancing and this just because the soil was so dusty just you couldn't see anything mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like a dust cloud gigantic dust cloud and um i remember looking behind me and there was this woman either an aunt or a grandmother looking out this tiny window of this house <laughs> with a little infant either a granddaughter or niece and I'd every couple of songs I'd turn around and wave at them and they'd wave back at me. <laughs> <laughs> Watching a drummer in a dust storm. Exactly. <laughs> but uh so it's the whole interconnectedness of the punk scene is is really interesting because um as soon as he mentioned El Paso <laughs> I knew exactly what he was talking about. <laughs> yeah, no, I really like that's why I well that's why I started doing this show is because I think you can connect everyone involved in punk through either being influenced by directly or in some cases playing with or playing for directly uh someone else that played in another band. Like it's just amazing how you know, if, I'm sure if you and I sat here right now, we could sit here and connect every punk band of of any time period in America and oh. Canada. Yeah. Oh, yep. Where did you kind of like going back to that scene? So Ivy League starts playing. Where did you fit in right away? Like, was that your first experience playing a show? Yeah. As far as like punk rock and everything, um, it was great because. You know, not playing necessarily at venues, but people's houses, you know, basements, uh, you know, wherever you could. Um, you know, you're growing up seeing mainstream bands or artists playing shows. It's always at a proper venue and you have tickets and, you know, and you have a parking lot and all these other things. So it was really refreshing uh, to play places that were a little more unique and com- comparative to that. Yeah. Like it's totally, you know, even to that cheap trick concert, like it's just a, a world away and it's a lot more, I don't know, just the energy is completely different playing a punk show. Yeah. And the likelihood of me meeting any of the guys from cheap trick <laughs> or, were greatly lessened by being in row three thousand four hundred and you know forty two, um, and that was the thing I liked about the punk shows was the intimacy of the band and audience. That if you wanted to go up and say hello to someone, you could. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, like prior to these shows, had you seen any other Chicago punk shows like other than that Fed show? Way back when? No. So it no, was, yeah, so I was, a totally different experience. Yeah. And uh, I absolutely loved it. Uh, it was just 
really refreshing. And uh, people could you could dress however you wanted. You can act however you wanted. Um, you know, like I said, uh, you know, you mentioned Weed Eater and all those bands, and uh, it was just really great to to get to know the people within that community because there was there was room to be serious or ridiculous and uh no one batted an eye it wasn't like you can't do that you you can't wear a diaper <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, say, you know um that sort of thing anything re- like absolutely you know you have to be serious you can't be whimsical nothing like that you know you could you could be one or the other or you could be both mm-hmm. um and i i really like that it um is sort of a philosophy that i still feel today well speaking of weed eater and whimsical was jeff jellen as funny back then as he is today i think that guy's one of the funniest yeah. dudes in the world yeah yeah he's really funny and he yeah. was he was really good at see this is this is what I'm lousy at. I'm lousy at networking and selling myself to people. Uh-huh. Um absolutely horrid at it, you know. Hence, you know, another reason why I'm not on social media. Uh that's probably another strike against me. Uh but uh but he was really good at selling Weed Eater seven inches, like like Ivy League, Target, Mannequin Hand, and Weed Eater all did seven inches for Shake Fork Records, which was based out of Donner's Grove, Illinois. And I think Weed Eater was the first band to sell out their whole pressing. But I'd see Jeff totally selling sizzle at the shows, <laughs> getting people to buy the seven inch. And I was just like, damn. <laughs> this guy's either going to be a used car salesman or a mayor. <laughs> you know, yes. I, was just, I was just like, it, it could go any way, <laughs> like, and he's going to be really successful at it. So uh, yeah, that Shake Fork Records comp, the decline of what the Western Suburbs, is amazing too. Um, oh no, that's not the one. Ivy League's on the other one, right? Like no punks in the no, pit. No, no punks in the pit. Yeah, that's an incredible comp because that's also got Billingsgate. Yep, and uh, and probably my favorite band uh, in the Western suburbs at the time, as far as that little conglomeration of bands. Um, I really wanted to be in that band too. Uh, what band? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Mannequin Hand. Oh yeah, you cut out when you said mannequin hand. Sorry, I was like Dicky Mo. Okay, maybe? sorry. <laughs> no, uh, mannequin hand was the, but uh, yeah, just I, th- I we actually recorded the song for that compilation. Uh, we were going to break up, and we decided to do this last last song. And I think Bob, the singer, had uh, laryngitis, and hence in the credits. The Robert laryngitis instead of vocals. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like I really enjoyed playing in a band with uh, with those guys in Ivy League. Uh, there are some really hysterical times and just uh, 
one absurd event after another was absolutely hilarious uh most of the time and uh yeah it was a lot of fun and we got to play some really fun shows um we actually got to do uh one out of town show in michigan and i'll bring this back to canada uh we got to play a skate park in michigan and uh sons of ishmael oh what an awesome bill and uh i remember because we're we played on the skate ramp itself and i remember bob kevin and scott from ivy league all running up and down the skate ramp and sliding on their butts and everything while they're playing and uh and uh meeting the guys of sons of ishmael beforehand before they played and just really super sweet nice friendly typical canadians (laughs) and uh and uh and they get on stage and it's just like <laughs> I was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, they're just they're like, raging. They're a raging band. Yeah, I was like, whoa, I was not expecting this. <laughs> and uh and I was like, oh, this is this is amazing. And I think they had a seven inch for sale, which I still have. Um Sons of Ishmael sing generic crap. Yeah, the second single, which is Yep. Fantastic. That first one, Hayseed Hardcore, might be the best Canadian hardcore 7-inch released. I, people are going to okay. definitely get mad at me for saying that, but I, I think I might be able to stand by that. That's okay. I just desecrated uh, the Riverdales earlier uh, in favor of Mars <laughs> Volta. So yeah, but you okay. were in the band. I, I didn't I didn't play in some of the so I can't put us over. You know, I was put another band over over yourself even there, so... Um, <laughs> I now remember the I remember the cover of that seven inch. They, I think it was a, originally a picture of the Bay City Rollers, and then they just uh, put their their heads in their in the in the proper places. Yeah. But uh, yeah, <laughs> there, there sing, was sing, sing generic crap is uh, they were neither generic nor were they crap. So. Uh, <laughs> And they yeah. also had a sense of humor too. Like that was another thing about Canadian oh. punk then is that it, it also had a sense of humor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and that was the thing that was like initially so confounding, like the first few seconds when they started up, I'm like, I was not expecting this because they were just, like I said, really just funny and, and sweet. And, and then all of a sudden it was just, you know, us in Ivy League thought that we were, you know, fairly lively and silly. They were just, yeah, they were amazing. Another, like, and this goes to the point that I wanted to talk about too with you is like that band Gear from Chicago, I think is super, super underrated. And oh, absolutely. It, Chicago really had more of a melodic kind of edge to a lot of the hardcore. Like, you know, obviously Crudos doesn't have that, but like, for a lot of the hardcore bands, there is that kind of melodic. Outcry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it was interesting how I got into Screeching Weasel was probably, again, using the word serpendipity. Uh, I think because everyone else wanted to be in a hardcore band. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think at that time when Screeching Weasel was getting back together to reform, um, 
I should I should rewind a little bit. Uh, the first time Screeching Weasel broke up, Ivy League opened up for Screeching Weasel. They played a show at McGregor's. I want to say the end of '89 or 1990s uh, or early 1990. I can't remember when, but it was uh, Ivy League, Apocalypse Hoboken, and Screeching Weasel. And oh. That's right. We had already done a song for the Octong Chicago comp. Yeah. So I had, I had already met Ben and John, and I didn't know this till later. I'm rewinding again. Sorry, everyone out there who's listening that hasn't fallen asleep yet. Uh, but uh, we recorded the song "Itemized" uh, for this for the Chicago compilation, and. I think Bob, our singer, was in the control room, and John was next to him. And John, did, I, I found this out much later, but John went up to Rob, to uh, Bob and said, "We're going to steal your drummer." It was meant to be. So, yeah. Um, but we played a, a sh- uh, yes, yeah, so we did a comp, we did a song for that compilation, and then we played their first last show. And they broke up. We opened for them. And then uh, I kept in contact sporadically with Ben uh, here and there. Ivy League had broken up, and I thought, okay, well, I guess I'm done playing music. I'm like, okay. Uh, I got to record. I got to do some recording, and I got to play some shows. That's all I ever wanted to do. And I thought that was it. And Ben had reached out to me and said that he's doing this band, the Go-Gore Girls, and they're playing at McGregor's. So I went out and saw them. And then he asked me, would be interested in doing a, a band? I was like, yeah. And because uh, I really like the melodic aspects of Screeching Weasel. I think to my benefit, I was probably one of maybe two or three drummers in the Chicagoland area that would have had an interest in playing melodic pop punk <laughs> everyone else wanted to be in a hardcore band or uh you know something of that nature so it's probably for my benefit if there are a squadron of drummers out there that want to do, do the same thing i wouldn't have had a snowball's chance in hell probably well it's also such a benefit for the genre too because you know your your style influences so many people afterwards oh that's Really? Oh, absolutely. You think so? Oh, absolutely. Huh. Like a whole okay. generation of, you know, drummers, I'm sure, learn how to play along to you. Uh, I was just ripping off Tommy Ramone and Bill Stevenson. <laughs> yeah, but the, that's the thing, right? Like combining those two, like two, talk about two completely different drummers and to like, you know, very cool drummers in their own right. But like, you know, combine those two styles, like you know, that's, that's the influence, I guess then, right? Like that's the sound. Huh? Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry not to silence you with that, but (laughs) no, I just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, okay. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't expect that, but no, um, but uh, okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Well, um, like, um, uh, there's so many people like I know that met in the Screeching Weasel chat room. 
you know, like it's, it's obviously you guys weren't touring to capitalize on it, but when you guys got back together and you know, you're, you're in the band now and you guys start that like real classic period, that classic lineup, like if you guys had toured, it would have been probably like one of the big, like, you know, obviously one of the biggest bands of the era already, but like one of the legit top bands of that time. Um, Hmm. And I mean, not just musically, I mean like by the financial metric as opposed to just the song metric, which Um, is definitely already there. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I just, uh, all I knew is when we were practicing, because I think it was April of 91 when I first uh, played with those guys. And it was uh, and it was Dave Naked, Dan Vapid, Ben, uh, Jughead, and I. And I remember being nervous as hell because I was also a huge Sledgeworth fan. <laughs> and being that I was still kind of newish on the kit. Um, yeah. I was like, I'm surrounded by people whose music I really admire and I might be over my head, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> and, uh, I had an extra, I had two X symbols. I remember we were playing two songs in. I thought, well, you know, I don't need this symbol. So I put it aside played a couple more songs. You know, I don't need this one either. And uh, I think the first thing I said to them before we played was, if there's anything that I'm playing that you don't like, let me know. And I think they were absolutely shocked by that because uh, there's not in all cases, but there are quite a few cases from other people in other bands where the drummer writes the drum parts, you know, don't don't you dare smite the drummer in his drum parts and i i to me it's like i just want to serve the song Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh and that's and that's basically my premise that was my declaration right then and there is if there's something that you don't like that i'm doing let me know you know and i think they were shocked by that because previous drummers they would add on more drums to their drum kit the longer they were in the band or they'd be like you know, I write the drum parts. Well, I'm not taking musical notation when I'm learning these songs. So I wouldn't really technically call it writing a drum part. Reacting, yes. But writing, no. And I guess that's, once again, so. like, that goes to your style too, right? Like that, that, and I think that probably comes from your humbleness too. You you don't really have a need to overplay, you know? Like, so I guess... You know, but that 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 once again has informed the way you play, and that has informed all the people that are influenced by you too. Huh. Well, I only—I mean, my—I would say my primary musical influence, as far as drumming, was Ringo Starr. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. That's Ringo not, Starr not, not a lot of people's Watts. first pick. Yeah. Um, well, that's how I started playing drums. Was I got a drum kit? took all my Beatles and Rolling Stones records, put on headphones, played along to those songs, mm-hmm. uh, played them exact, as exact as I possibly could. And that's how I learned how to play the drums. Um, I found out much later in life that uh, there was a reason why it was so easy for me to play along to Ringo. It was because, it was because 
I was originally left-handed. I went to a Catholic preschool on the south side of Chicago, and the nuns would take a ruler to my hand and beat it and force me to write with my right. Wow. Found out that Ringo was originally left-handed, and he was forced to write with his right hand. So when I bought a drum kit, I didn't know any better. Like, I could set up my drum kit left-handed. I had no idea. I saw all the pictures in the magazines, like, oh, this is how you set up a drum kit. You set it up like a right-handed drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't until I was in the ghoulies when another drummer asked me if I was left-handed. And I said, I used to be. Why? It's like, I know you play a right-handed drum kit, but you start all your drum fills with your left hand. And I didn't even think about that, mm-hmm. but it is kind of a, kind of an odd way of, of doing drum fills, especially doing those fast rolls, you know, around the drum kit. Uh, a little more work, and I, it just never occurred to me. I thought this is this is how I do it. It wasn't until I saw an interview much later with Ringo how he says how his drum fills are kind of weird because he starts with this left hand, and that's why it was so easy. It felt like home to me, comfortable to play along to the Beatles songs because I had that same inclination. Were you a fan of the early Screeching Weasel records, like that first LP and, and Boogada Boogada Boogada? There were a couple of songs off the first uh, Screeching Weasel album I liked, um, and I liked the more melodic stuff on Boogada. And I think that's where my heart um, initially lied as far as playing punk rock, though I liked noisy stuff too and abstract stuff as well. But I found that the melodic sensibilities were more subversive than your uh, really angry hardcore because I felt you could really reel people in with a melody that maybe weren't into punk rock, but it's sort of a way to get your message across with honey, um, but still be kind of abrasive at the same time mm-hmm. without people really knowing about it. And that was the thing that used to bug me about you know, criticisms about Screeching Weasel, the the too cool for school people uh, look down at Screeching Weasel as being too whimsical or too melodic. And um, like, no, or like, oh, they're just a bunch of Ramones clones. I'm like, hardly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 I don't hear as much of a Ramones influence in the Screeching Weasel. There's a little bit, but I think it's uh, – I think it's probably people in the media is sort of like a, a simple, uh, like, oh, how do we describe this band? Oh, we'll just call them a Ramones clone band. It's like, but Screeching really wasn't as Ramonesy as people claimed uh, it was. No, I thought there were a lot more elements to it. Uh, so it kind of perplexed me that we got kind of, and uh, I mean, to, to be compared to the Ramones isn't. Uh, a negative thing in my book whatsoever. But I thought it was just kind of lazy journalism and a lazy description of the band because there were so many different uh, influences. And I just thought that some people just thought, oh, well, they're making jokes about methadone or relationships. Uh, they're whimsical and they're not serious like we are. And I was like, well, listen to Science and Myth or Mary was an anarchist or – you know, like there are plenty of songs that Ben wrote lyrically that addressed serious issues, and he never seemed to get the credit for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
which was just mind boggling. Yeah, and I, uh, what you said too about being the honey with the medicine too. There's a lot of screeching mm-hmm. weasel songs that do have a deeper message than first presented to you when you when you hear you know the title or, or hear it the first time through. Uh, and I mean, talk about like like I want to be a homosexual. Yeah, exactly. Uh, talk about talk about just coming out of the gates and just like throwing <laughs> throwing it in people's faces. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but I thought it it got the message across better with a melodic sensibility to it. It would have been a lot easier if it was just, you know, screaming and just completely abrasive. But well, and that and then also I think that's really driven home on that born against split a couple years later because mm-hmm. the screeching weasel songs on that are fucking ridiculous. How good they are. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just you know the great thing about that one was I think we were staying at the uh, I think Sam and Adam mm-hmm. they were staying at their place in I think in Jersey and it was the night that I was introduced to the movie King of Comedy uh, great movie one of the uh, that's probably the best one yeah um, and something I got to learn. Uh, Screeching Weasel and Born Against played a few shows together in that area. Uh, I think it was like 92. And it was really interesting to see the Born Against audience and how serious they were and how much humor Sam had. Like just this absurdist humor and quality that he had to it was – and you have these – the audience were very serious. I just thought the – the, the the two it was just it was just kind of comical because I saw the humor in what he did uh, uh, almost immediately. And I remember I think it was when we were staying with them that Ben and Sam hatched the plan that you know what we should do we should piss off both of our <laughs> whatever following <laughs> we have and do a split together. <laughs> and so Sam wrote the lyrics for the Screeching Weasel tunes and Ben wrote the lyrics for the Born Against. Uh, yeah, tunes, and uh, I thought, man, <laughs> this is. <good."> and <clears throat> I think we all got some amusement out of it, um, and I'm sure there are some people that were probably looked at "Born Against" as, you know, how dare they, you know, hitch their you know, hitch their trailer to these poppy sellouts. And then on the Screeching Weasel side, like, you know, oh, they're just groveling for punk credibility. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because, like, we were talking about, like, there was that breaking down, it felt like, of the codification in the early 90s. And then by the late 90s, all those walls were back up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably around the time when I started getting disinterested in playing punk rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, well, I could do this pop punk thing probably for the rest of my life, but I'm like, that's not why I got into music was to be, you know, I didn't do it to be comfortable. Um, and so I just decided one day it's like, you know, I don't, I don't want to play punk rock anymore. It's like, um, I'm just not feeling it. 
I just, I just got burnt out on it. And I thought, uh, the best thing for me to do is do something else or a different style or, you know, anything else. Uh, I just thought, yeah, it would just be, I didn't want to be complacent. That was the, that's the word I'm looking for. I just didn't want to be complacent. Uh, I didn't want to get stuck or pigeonholed into, uh, well, this is what I do and, and I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And, and, and dog bless those who feel that way. You know, it's, it's not a criticism, uh, to anyone else out there who, if they found their little niche in life and they want to stick to it, um, whether it's for personal reasons or financial, it's like, I have no criticism of that whatsoever. Um, but I just got to a point where, um, I just didn't want to, yeah, I just didn't want to rest on my laurels. And I thought it would have been more of a, it would have been more of a disservice for me to just stick around and just go through the motions. And I didn't want to do that because I cared and I cared too much. So yeah, so you hit a point where you like you stop playing music entirely, or do you still play drums? Um, I still do. Um, I. I stopped playing drums for about five years. Wow! And then, um, and then, I got in touch with Ben, and they and Screeching Weasel, the the revamped Screeching Weasel, were playing in San Francisco, and so he asked me if I wanted to come out, and so I did. And uh, I ended up jumping on stage and playing a song with them. It was just really good to see Ben again and and uh, the guys that were in Screeching Weasel now. Um, and they, yeah, they were just uh, really great. And Ben asked if I'd come out to Chicago and, uh, you know, do something, play a couple songs at uh, Reggie's in Chicago. And so I did. And Mass... Uh, who's a squirt gun and recorded a bunch of uh, albums for Lookout in charge of Sonic Iguana. Uh, he, I hadn't seen him in, in years. And I over, he was talking to someone about squirt gun got offered to play the Lookouting. I think January of 2017. It's like, we, we you know, but we don't have a drummer. And he turned around and looked at me and I looked at him and said, well, if you need someone, let me know. And so a few months down the line, he asked if I was interested and I thought, okay, I'll do it. And, uh, it took me a while to, to sit behind the drum kit again. Cause I had the drum set up and I'd like walk past and look at him like, mm, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, like we're both eyeing each other, you know, we're, we're down this like old, old, like uh Western motif yeah. like in an old Western movie. And we're like, you know, like I right, draw, uh, sort of thing. Um, and so I just, it took me a while, but eventually I sat down and realized how much stamina it took to play the stuff again. And especially with Dan Lumley, who's an incredible drummer, uh, who's the drummer for Screeching Weasel and a bunch of uh, and Squirt Gun and a bunch of other bands. Uh, 
yeah, it got me back on the saddle fairly quickly again. So uh, I play uh, sporadic shows with Squirt Gun, and I've done some studio work here and there um, for whoever needs it. Was it was it the touring that you think burnt you out, or is it just like being in a band? Because like you know, like outside of you know, we talked about Screeching Weasel and the Queers, but and we talked about Groovy Ghoulies, but you also like played with Penelope Houston. You played in uh, Beulah, like you played in. You played in like a lot of other bands, right? Like, what what do you think it was that made you yeah, want about twenty two? Like, pardon me, about twenty two different bands. Yeah, 20, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what um, happened? Where you like? What was it about it that you think burnt you out? Um, I just think I didn't have a sense of of home. Uh, I think that, you know, anyone who plays in a band in, if you're recording albums and you're playing shows and touring, it takes a tremendous amount of your personal time. And since I've been doing it since age 21 or before I turned to a late, about 20 years old up until about 33, 34, I was doing it, you know, uh, very frequently. So it was just, uh, I just, I just got burnt out of, uh, the rigmarole of, you know, having to play shows or having to put out an album or you have to do this, you have to do that. And, um, and then working jobs in between all that too. So it wasn't like I'd come home from tour and just twiddle my thumbs and wait for someone to give me the call. You know, I'd, I'd come back and usually a day or two later, I'd be back at work. So I, I didn't have vac- there wasn't a thing called vacation time. Um, you know, uh, I didn't have a 401k. I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have any stability. And I just got to a point where I just got really tired of it. It's like, am I going to be like 50 years old and still, you know, and as much as I love playing shows and meeting people and everything, it's like, I need to get my shit together, <laughs> you know, not just, uh, not just physically, but, you know, emotionally, mentally, philosophically. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, I want to, you know, I want some stability in my life. Uh, I'll enjoy it much more if I have that. And, uh, and then there was just a period where I just decided I'm done. Just one day I decided I, I don't want to play drums anymore. And so I didn't touch him for five years. Wow. That's, that's amazing to kind of like have that, you know, ability to just put it away. Yeah. And you know what? I, I really didn't miss uh, initially at first it was a bit, I was, I felt like I was going through a little bit of a withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Um, But after a while I was like, no. And even people would visit, you know, where I lived and, you know, they wouldn't see any posters of the bands I've been in or any of the music that I played on. You know, it's like you wouldn't know that someone who's been in all these bands lived here. <laughs> uh, so a lot of it was out of sight, out of mind. And uh, and it wasn't out of, out of anger or anything like that. It was just I, I, I just wanted to get away from it for a, a while. Or for good, I wasn't sure. But I was just like, yeah, you know, I just, I'm ready to take 
a break or be done with it for good. I wasn't sure where it was going to go. Well, Dan, this has been amazing. And I, of course, have to invite you back for a part two some point down the line. Okay. Um, But before you go, one thing I really wanted to talk to you about, because I don't think I even realized this until we hung out that first time uh, in in SF, but or not not the very first time way back when in Toronto, but uh, the first time in SF when you were kind of telling me on that, that Green Day, Riverdale's Pansy Division tour, you were playing drums in both bands, right? Oh no, that was um that was Screeching Weasel. Uh that was ninety-three. Uh and it was uh, the Queers. It was the Queers and Screeching Weasel. You played drums in both the Queers and Screeching Weasel. Did you play yeah. drums in Panzer so, Division for a tour too though? I did, yeah. I did uh it was November and December of ninety four. What where was that tour? Yeah. Uh, that was uh, United States. So we just uh, oh, we we did play we did play Toronto. I think we played Maple Leaf. Wait, no, maybe we didn't play Maple Leaf Gardens. Maybe we did that with the Riverdales. I can't remember. I thought, yeah, because like uh, it was, uh, yeah, Pansy Division, and it was at um, was it Maple Leaf Gardens or it was at like uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that venue. No, maybe it was Maple Leaf Gardens. Yeah, or I know that we played up there with the Riverdales, uh, with uh, opening up for Green Day uh, about a year later. But I can't remember if that was Maple Leaf Gardens or not. Yeah, you're right. That might have been Maple oh, Leaf I, Gardens on the tour. Was it like Ditotestein that was also on the tour, or Ditotenhosen? I mean, yeah, uh, Ditotenhosen. Yeah, on the Pansy Division tour. Yeah, and that yeah, was, that, was like, uh, a horse thing, in, in at by the CNE, I think. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, and then the yeah, and then Riverdale's played in '95. I think at Maple Leaf, and I remember meeting the guys from Propagandi at that show because uh, we had them on the guest list. And I think somewhere in the course of our set, Ben gave a shout out to Propagandi, the best uh, band, best band in Canada. Uh, and I think the I think the guys in Propaganda were just a, a little confused by <laughs> being in this huge place and being backstage and and then yeah the whole thing. But uh, they were really nice uh, as well. Absolutely, what a you know another band that really changed things when they with their records. You know, like changed the oh, way that bands approach it. Yeah, they're just they're they're crazy they're crazily ridiculously great musicians yeah oh absolutely where what was that pansy division tour like opening for green day like what were the crowd reactions like to the band and what was because that was the point where green day is kind of exploding right or they'd already kind of exploded by that point yeah um not that not that well received (laughs) (laughs) yeah um, and which was a shame because, you know, I think the, the mindset was, well, Green Day are getting popular and punk rock and some of the, the, the ethos of punk rock is starting to creep into mainstream society and they'll be open-minded and they'll, you know, accept this queer core band with open arms, uh, literally and figuratively, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and if, 
I'm not mistaken, I believe it was in Philadelphia where we were just getting changed thrown at us right and left. Um, Wow. Chris, the bass player, I think picked up about $14 worth of change. I think John picked up about seven and I picked up close to about $7 worth of change. So thanks to the gratuity of the audience, we were able to pay our toll fares uh, throughout the East coast. So um, thank you for all those who donated uh, aggressively uh, for that. Uh, But yeah. That would have been such a hard yeah. tour to be on, I imagine, too, because, you know, like the, the venues are huge. And so when when you're meeting a hostile reaction, you're not just meeting it from like a couple idiots in the audience. You're meeting it from like a sizable number of idiots in a huge crowd. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, and and that's, a th- I think, in a punk rock history, I feel like. Pansy Division have not gotten the recognition they truly deserve. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because uh, uh, they were – their subject matter and their philosophy, uh, I mean, they brought it all over. I mean, they, they they played Mississippi. They play Alabama. They, you know, they, they play anywhere and everywhere. And that takes guts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and – I really got to learn a lot about where they came from and their beliefs. And it was just really, I'm really grateful that I was able to be a part of that tour because they were really great guys. And, you know, they really deserve icon status as far as I'm concerned. And not just for what they stood for, but for their songs as well. Yeah, definitely. Like a fantastic band, like you're saying, for for the message. But also, yeah, those records hold up like those are some songs. Yeah, you know, and I just, you know, it's the fact that they went, you know, all over the world with this fairly suggestive music, um, especially at that period of time. Uh, not a lot of people were doing that. Mm-hmm. In fact, I can't really think of many at all. <laughs> yeah, <don't like laughs> or so openly blatant like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and how many people's so like, Angus was, soundtrack, like stuff like that, like just how many people's eyes were open to new worlds by that band? Yeah, uh, you know it. I think you know now they'd be applauded. You know and carried down the streets with a ticker tape parade. But, uh, back then there were, there were people that really wanted to kill us, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I, and I was just on a, on a, you know, a relatively short tour with them. I mean, they, they toured like dogs for a year. So I can't imagine, uh, you know, I got a small taste of what they went through. Um, yeah. I mean, they really, they waved the flag uh, figuratively and uh, literally uh, for a long time, you know, and uh, they really deserve more credit than, than they're given. Absolutely. Well, this has been an amazing conversation once again, Dan, and I hope you come back for a part two at some point. And thank you so much for everything, dude. Thank you for being cool to me 
all those years ago and still being cool all these years later. Oh, thank you so much, man. Uh, it really means a lot. And getting to see y- you uh, in Fucked Up Play uh, was just, yeah, I was just so, I was, yeah, I absolutely loved it. And everyone in the band were just really sweet to me. And uh, I'm sure there's probably like, is this guy still back here? <laughs> no, um, dude, so. no, 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 no. They asked that about me. <laughs> More than they asked that about anyone else back there. Trust me. <laughs> but, but I was just like, ah, but yeah, yeah, uh, really. Um, yeah. Like I said, I really uh, honored to be part of this podcast and uh, to have had time to talk to you beforehand. And yeah. And again, thank you for the great music that you and the band have uh, produced. And thank you. Thank God, once again, it's an audio podcast because I'm like as red as a tomato right now. I am too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dan, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Dan will be back at some point in the future for a part two. Speaking about the future, I'm going to be doing another surprise episode this week. I'm going to have another episode drop because I I made you wait so long for this episode. So I decided to throw in another one of these part twos in the middle of the week. So get your, you know, browsers, streamers, podcast downloaders, whatever you use to hear podcasts ready because coming out this Thursday – Thursday night, so Friday, in time for the weekend, it is part two with Chris Hanna from Propaganda. You heard Propaganda mentioned on this episode, so what better segue than that to lead to an incredibly depressing conversation with Chris Hanna. This is a, oh, oh, this is a bummer, you know, it's just two people being very honest with each other. Uh, but there's not a lot of joy in that honesty. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to warn you if you're someone who's prone to being depressed, um, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe don't listen to this one or maybe listen to this one, you know, at a, at a good point. Um, because it's just, you know, two people kind of lamenting the fact that we're living in a, a, a world that punk rock foretold, but unfortunately it's not a great world right now, but you'll hear all about it later on this week on that show. Thank you everyone again for listening. Thank you to Dan panic and thank you to Vans. Uh, thank you to you. And that's it. Uh, go out there and make your own culture. Check out the wrestlers this week at 10 PM on Wednesday, sorry, this Wednesday at 10 PM. And it's also on Saturday at 10 PM on vice land in the UK. Check it out. I think you're going to dig it. It, there's there's some wild shit in this week's episode. There's some real wild shit. There's wild shit in every episode, but this one, Oh, it's got a couple scenes. Anyone who's seen it can attest to that. Uh, and go there and sign your organ owner cards. And that's it. Uh, I will see you later on this week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for the support. And uh, yeah, that's it. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.